What's up, everybody? This is a recently unnamed podcast episode. This is episode number five. We're in a little bit of a uh, rebranding here after some feedback from our peers and colleagues. Um, so stay tuned for the rebrand name. But anyways, this is episode five. And my guest today is Dr. Kelly Spears. Um, she is a recent physical therapy graduate with uh, the Drexel University Physical Therapy and Rehab Sciences Department. Um, so she was my colleague for the past year and still is technically my colleague, I guess. <laughs> um, and yep. she also was a student at the Drexel University DPT program. And recently, as far as residency goes, she has just finished the program. So congrats to her. And she submitted a case study on a very interesting case uh, to CSMs to present on. So hopefully that gets published. And I guess we'll find out here in the next couple of months if CSM is still going to yeah. happen. <laughs> I know. I've been wondering about that. Um, and unfortunately, she didn't provide any any interesting <laughs> things or anything she wants you to know about her. Um, so she's just our boring guest for today that might have some insightful things to say. <laughs> I'm just a very average person. Actually, when I was looking at, uh, you know, what what I should say, like I hate this question and then I thought back to um our first like orientation at Drexel together and we were sitting in that conference room and I was like 95 degrees and we had to think of something interesting to say about ourselves yeah uh, and you you said you were a dog walker so that's very interesting and I think I just said I was a New York Giants fan which is oh, very yeah. not interesting during the pot in Philadelphia <laughs> so but. it's still uninteresting um but I guess yeah. I'll use that fact. That's all right. It's interesting <laughs> to New York Giants fans. <laughs> Anyways, without further ado, this is the unnamed podcast episode number five. All right. All right, Kelly, what's going on? What you been up to? Nothing. Um, Nothing? I mean, I'm still, I feel like I'm still in quarantine. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> except you... except not really, you know, going out a little bit, but otherwise I'm living in Philadelphia. Um I'm sleeping in until like nine o'clock, ten o'clock every day. Oh. <laughs> ten o'clock's a stretch. Um ten o'clock's a stretch. Yeah. What have you um, uh, been doing to make your stay busy with all your free time now that you're done yeah, with residency? I know. So I mean I'm I'm looking for work, but I, my days are full of going outside, going for a jog, coming back, maybe reading a book, um, listening to other podcasts, Let's, well, watching lots of Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes doing yoga. Yeah. <laughs> really whatever I feel like doing. <laughs> yeah. You're just going where the and wind blows right now. It sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. What about you? Um, I mean, honestly, a lot of the same things. <laughs> I've been <laughs> spending lots of intermittent time on Indeed and Glassdoor and yeah. LinkedIn jobs and same. trying trying to I mean, find something that pops up. <laughs> I know it's not not a ton out there, but I, it is getting better though. Yes, um, it's better starting to look up. Yeah, so. like when we were done in July or end of June, there was like nothing, right. but things are starting to come together. So, yeah, yeah. I feel like any, we're in a good uh, spot. 
any potential uh, employments or opportunities you're looking at? Uh, yeah, I actually I have an interview tomorrow um, with a company in New Jersey. Um, but I kind of, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. I'm nervous. I haven't yeah. like, I was saying my, my boyfriend who's also PT, but I haven't been like out in public professionally since, you know, March. Yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> we completed the rest of our residency online. So yep. it's like an in-person interview. You know, I have to collect myself. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, uh, like Noel, Dr. Noel Goodset always said, uh, most of us end up needing that New Jersey license after all. <laughs> I know. I honestly, I was like, I need to let him know, but I'm going to wait to see what happens first. <laughs> but, but if it works out, I'll be like, you know, all that effort to get that New Jersey license really, it right. did pay off. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, what about I, uh, you? Well, I wish you the best of luck. I actually had a, just a brief like meet and greet today and they want me to come in tomorrow actually for a more in-person informal interview. So oh, that's nice. the We're that. in the same boat. Yep. <laughs> um, so I'm headed down to Rittenhouse area tomorrow or South Philly area for a job interview. So I'm looking forward to that. But like you said, definitely a little like putting back on the professional pants <laughs> and <laughs> I uh, had to <laughs> break out. still fit? <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe a little bit too snug right here after quarantine, but, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I had to break out the shirt and tie and make sure all the wrinkles were out and just to be told I'm not, I'm not to wear a shirt and tie again. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but no, I'm, I'm looking uh, forward to the opportunity. It should be good. Yeah. So congrats. That's exciting. Yeah, it's, uh, things are starting to get positive despite all of this negative stuff that we're seeing everywhere else during COVID and quarantine. But so just to give everyone kind of a little bit of heads up as to like where we're currently at, today's August 12th, 2020. And Kelly and I, Dr. Kelly Spears and I, just finished the Drexel University Orthopedic Residency Program. Um, we're currently both unemployed, but we're actively seeking uh, employment opportunities. So if anyone's out there listening and we're still not hired by the time you hear this, uh, you know where to find us. What about you, Kelly? I know you just finished, but. Yeah, uh, and you summed it up. Um, you know, we've been done since June 30th. Um, and since it's the era of the coronavirus, there hasn't been much going on Um for outpatient physical therapy jobs, which is what we are both interested in. So yeah, uh, as I said, you know, I've, I've been applying, but other than that, I am enjoying some off from residency in between <laughs> jobs. Um, but I'm looking forward to getting back in the clinic because that's what I like to do. So to transition kind of into like why I asked you to be on the show today, um, but also to stay off topic and keep you engaged in the conversation so you don't see everything as an expected question for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking of COVID-19, and since we both had the same experience, I know uh, talking in the past on the previous, like on our first episode, Nick and I were discussing um, kind of the differences in COVID response from our residency programs. But I just wanted to hear kind of like, what your reflections are and looking back on like how Drexel handled the whole COVID-19 situation and what'd you walk away from it um, being a better clinician or were there any like mm -hmm. 
moments that you were like, wow, I'm so proud to be at how Drex was responding to the situation were the things that you would have liked to see? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, I think Drexel did all the right things in their response um, and right meaning what's safe for patients and clinicians and obviously the, um, the public. So at the time uh, when COVID you know, was announced that it's in the Philadelphia area um, and things started to close down mid-March, we also decided to close down our clinics, but you know, that was at a time no one knew what was going on. So there was that initial, we're going to shut down for two weeks, yep. um, <laughs> you know, and see where we're at. Yeah. Little did we know. <laughs> to a lot longer, <laughs> but um, you know, we, I think we did a good job by making that communication clear to our patients and what was going on. Um, you know, so we stayed open for a couple extra days with some safety precautions just to wrap up some patient care and transition them. Um, and then I think another good response we had was we immediately developed that telehealth uh, opportunity in our clinics so that we could continue care with our patients, especially when we realized that um, we are not going to be going back to the clinic anytime soon. And so the other aspect for us um, in residency, there's a bit of a panic, you know, we need to get a certain amount of hours to complete a residency. What's going to happen? How about our mentorship hours? So I thought our director uh, handled that very well because he, he was panicking on the inside, I think, but mm -hmm. um, he, he oh, sure. remained calm, at least to us. Yeah, I know. Um, he remained calm for us and he like did everything that he could to make sure we still got the experience that we, um, you know, joined a residency for. So what we ended up doing was besides telehealth appointments uh, when they came up and were available, but we got more online with um, the students in Drexel's DVD program. So we had the opportunity to teach a class um, or facilitate a discussion-based learning class online, um, which I really liked. And we also were uh, actively involved with weekly case rounds where we took our own patient cases and turned them into PowerPoint presentations, um, which was really supposed to be like a back and forth open discussion with the students, um, even some of the faculty that wanted to join in. Um, what else we do? We still had our modules. We, we had a yeah. lot of learning we still had to do online. <laughs> we had, I look there at it is, as we had yeah. everything yeah. from before, but now all of this online stuff on top of it, <laughs> at least early on. And then right. we adapted to the increase in workload and kind of, it, it came together again. It did. Yes. Obviously there was a bit of a scramble, like, you know, March, even beginning of April. Yeah. Um, but then it did start to smooth out. Yeah. I remember we had a lot thrown on our plate initially, I think, in that panic of like, what right. are we going to do? Yeah, <laughs> Create that's for sure. Protocols. Yeah. So it seems um, like overall, um, you were pretty happy with the response that the program had as far as like the, the pandemic response crisis. Yeah, I was. And one thing that you know, maybe could have happened, but I understand why it didn't was if our clinics like could have opened up again and, and right. we go back in person um, just with additional precautions, PPE, um, you know, social distancing, everything with the guidelines and open back up. 
Now, I, uh, from my understanding, a reason that that didn't happen and may not still be happening is because the location of the clinic is inside um, a gym, which the gyms were still closed. And I believe that rec center is still closed as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really hard to open a clinic inside a building that is closed um, due to the pandemic. And then yeah. besides half of our patients being students who are not on campus, but um, you know, that could have been something that would be beneficial. Like if that was able to happen to get us in the clinic and be practicing peas during the pandemic right. in person. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like the response that did occur, I was overall very satisfied with like, I guess the best word would be the innovation. So rather than mm-hmm. just like, oh, can't do that, guess you guys are going to miss out on it. Um, we were fortunate enough to be a part of a program um, with a director and a team of mentors that were very dedicated to our learning experience and finding a way to still give us a quality residency experience, even though we were missing out on a lot of the inpatient treatment hours. And honestly, one of my favorite things is because I really looked forward to the weekly mentor sessions that were scheduled in Black Forest. Um, Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, we went from seeing eight to 12 patients a day, depending on how long your day was, to seeing no patients a day because we still didn't have telehealth up and running. And so (laughs) there was a, a little bit of a period there where it was like, Hmm, I wonder how my mentors are doing, <laughs> but <laughs> they, uh, they adapted They're nicely. in their own work. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were just as busy, if not busier. <laughs> um, so the idea of like the case studies so, or not the case studies, the chart reviews at first I was like, mm, I can't mm. wait to do more chart reviews than we've already been doing. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, wait a second, this is a really good opportunity to like look back on the things that we had done with previous patients and have our mentors go through the charts too, which they didn't always do and catch mistakes Mm -hmm. or regardless beyond like the logistical stuff, because that came up and then early, it became very quickly, oh, well, you know that you make this mistake regularly, so I don't (laughs) need to keep calling you out for it. (laughs) But yes, exactly. (laughs) More about the discussion of like, errors in clinical reasoning almost. Right. Yeah. My mentor, um, her quote was, oh, let's make this a qualitative chart review, <laughs> you know, not like a quantitative or logistic right. chart review. Um, yeah. I also found those very valuable. Um, it, just as you said, like looking back on what we were doing at the time, which we probably, you know, didn't even realize we were so not only were we busy in the clinic and with um, in the labs and our own learning, but we were earlier on in residency. So then to be able to, um, you know, sit there at our own desks mm-hmm. in our apartments and, and look back at those charts and really question yourself and like what you were doing at the time, I did find that valuable too. Yeah, absolutely. How do you think that your like opinion and reflection on this would have changed as if you were like just starting the residency program? So like, say you were like a month into the program and they're like, oh yeah, we have to shut down the clinic to kind of stay in accordance to state mandates. And then they threw all of these things on you. How do you think that that would have been different? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that would be really, really tough. It's it's kind of a hard question to answer because, Mm -hmm. 
you know, if I, if we were just one month into residency, um, I mean, that would be like one, one month into being an actual PT because mm -hmm. we both are new grads. So, um, that's a really tough question, but I mean, I would have to just like go with the flow unless I really like rethought my purpose of being in residency, but it's a hard time because, um, I mean, it's a pandemic, a worldwide yeah. <laughs> like issue, you know, you can't like ex escape it. So, um, you know, I think it would just be about adapting and going with the flow and which is what we had to do anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and knowing that it's not gonna, like, this isn't something that's going to last forever, right. hopefully. Yeah. I mean, I think, <laughs> hopefully, I, don't know. I, I know, same. <laughs> Although I think we also have, and this is just my opinion. I think we also have these like misperceptions of how long things should be taking but if you look back mm -hmm. at like the spanish flu i'm pretty sure it was like three years so like yeah i think we kind of just had this notion like oh things happen really quickly therefore this is going to happen quickly too <laughs> um but the reality is is i think that some of our like perceptions of time are a little bit distorted but that's a different day different story <laughs> um <laughs> Just like we thought this pandemic would be over if everyone yeah. quarantined. Yeah, well, we were going to have football. So we were we'll gonna, be back to work. <laughs> yeah, we'd be back to work. Yeah. We'd be back going to concerts at the end of the summer. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, strange times we're in. But hey, you know what? It's, a, it it's something that I think that we all have a lot to learn from and we can grow and become better because of it. Yeah. So, But kind of piggybacking off of that question that I just posed to you, um, as far as like how your response would have been early on in residency versus where you are now um, and your response to it now. Talk to me a little bit about your experience through residency um, and then I'll chime in with like my perspective and my opinions, but how you changed from day one to day three, it was over 365 because it was like 13 and a half months. That's or true. Like that. Yeah, we but from day right, right. 365 plus X or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, one of the biggest things that for myself is uh, like confidence in, you know, myself as a PT, but it's, sorry. No, you're fine. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess I like don't know how to like which aspect you want this question to go like just you want big picture just... right now like how did you as a yeah. clinician globally change from day one to now so confidence I like that that's a pretty global thing how did you right. as Dr. Kelly Spears walk away <laughs> from being entry level to working on professional development towards expert uh, clinician whenever that occurs right yeah I mean that comes so not only there's so many things that happen in a residency that I feel like this is why I'm having trouble answering this question like right. you know how I want to answer it because not only are you just a new grad um, joining like getting into the the work field you're obviously going to learn um, there whether you have a good mentor or not because it's experience, you're gonna gain experience, you're gonna learn. Um, but a residency, it was like accelerated. Um, mm -hmm. Not only, 
or you're just getting the experience of being a practicing PT, but you, well, you do have this guided mentorship. So any, like, let's say you make little harmless mistakes, nothing big, but just harmless mistakes as a new PT. Um, you have someone that can like channel those mistakes and thought processes into something productive right. or realizing that it could, that it was possibly a mistake. By mistake, I mean like, you know, an error in like your thought process, um, how you went about something, not necessarily like, a, I mean, it could be a skills mistake too, but, but really like a critical like thought process mistake. You have somebody there that can guide that into productive learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also in, the, in our residency and other residencies is you have advanced like learning topics. So you're getting experience hands-on um, and then you're learning uh, more about, in our case, orthopedics because we have mm-hmm. an orthopedic residency. So advanced topics that are gonna also accelerate your thought process, um, how you critically think about things so that when you are in the clinic, um, I mean, again, this goes back to like my confidence just growing because you, you know more, but you also know how to channel those thoughts. Um, and yeah, do you have anything to go off of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that your, the idea of like your confidence improved, I, I 100% agree with that. I think that for me, at least, and I don't know if this is true of entry-level clinicians that don't go through a residency program, but mm-hmm. I think even particularly for me, because there was a little bit of a gap in between the last time I was in an orthopedic clinic and when I started mm-hmm. this orthopedic residency, there was a pretty good chunk of time that I was not surrounded by orthopedics at all. Like I came from PEDS. Right. I was in a PEDS clinical and I, there were some orthopedic clinic, uh, patients there, but there were so few and far between that. But when I, I basically like forgot what orthopedic physical therapy was <laughs> and coming from beads, yeah. it was one patient an hour. So it's super yes. easy to like maintain your time. And I just remember the first couple of weeks, I was like, you want me to see how many patients today? And it wasn't even I a know. lot. It just felt like a lot. So that just the the difference of like being away, but also having to like refamiliarize myself with all of these things that you need to know for orthopedics. I had no confidence whatsoever. My confidence at that point Mm -hmm. was in peds and like simplifying everything so much to a way that parents will recognize it on behalf of their kids, because I was talking to people about other people rather than laying it down for the people sitting right in front of me that Mm -hmm. are the the patient or the client. Um, So early on confidence, I had like none. I was like talking about how, I guess an example is like when you're doing your patient education, I would often ramble to try to like sell the fact that I knew what I was doing. (laughs) And so I would just get excited about the same exact thing. (laughs) Yeah. I'd just be like, Oh, you worked on your cuff, you touched your scapula, your glenoid. And so I would just be like thrown out words. Yeah. Throwing out big words (laughs) to show the patient that you knew what you were talking about. And then I felt like pretty quickly because of the mentorship that we were receiving, I was reassured that I did know what I was talking about and that I could Mm -hmm. take a step back and start to like actually think about the things that I was doing rather than trying to prove myself to the patients that I was like worthy of like providing them care or whatever. So I feel like Mm -hmm. for me, 
the confidence occurred pretty quickly um, early in the residency experience, uh, which mm -hmm. allowed me to focus on things later on, uh, the things such as uh, like the soft skills, like Nick and um, I think uh, Liz Arnold talked about in a previous episode um, with like communication. So it'll getting that confidence out of the way with having surrounding yourself by mentors really opened the door to set me and I'm sure you feel the way, same way set yourself up to progress your um, clinical skills basically mm -hmm. yeah um yeah going off something you said like again since we're new grads you know we came out of school we had clinical affiliations in different settings and obviously we were both interested in orthopedics which is why we went into an ortho residency but I too came from well my last rotation was a home care Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, does do some orthopedics, but mine was more of a geriatric home care. And I saw a lot of patients with dementia or Parkinson's disease, which you can absolutely see in an outpatient clinic. Um, but we we're doing different things. We we're doing transfers, um, family education, more like safety in the home. And so, I, you know, I too came into the residency ready to work and ready to learn, but mm -hmm. also very nervous. Like, do I remember how to do my special tests or, or just an initial right. evaluation. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but going back to the, the confidence, another thing that I realized, well, early on, you know, you come in, I'm really nervous, um, trying to just like be a robot and remember everything that I need to do in mm -hmm. my initial evaluation. But I also, um, also knew like, you know, this is what I want to do. I, I did very well in PT school. So, you know, we both got into a residency. So, mm -hmm. You know, I was, I did have a level of confidence, um, not all the confidence that I, I needed maybe, but right. I had a, level, <laughs> a certain level of it. But there was a period like in the beginning of residency where the confidence actually went down before it started mm -hmm. to go up. Um, and that came with the mentorship. Mm -hmm. And I say that because the mentors are constantly questioning your decision-making, questioning why did you do that? Um, you know, what were you thinking when you were doing that or in that initial evaluation? Or why is this your exercise prescription? And the reason they're asking these things are so that you can think about your own thought process and have a purpose to what you're doing. Right. Um, but early on in residency, I think I was taking all that and just feeling like, am I doing everything wrong? Yeah, <laughs> you're being you know, attacked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, with so many questions. Um, but then it took, you know, it takes some self, some insight to realize, like, you know, you answer the, the question, why are you doing this? And you tell them why. And, and they're like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, oh, all right, no, I am doing things right. They just want to like understand why and have me understand why I'm making the choices that I'm making. Um, and so from there, you know, you start to learn and, and with your experience and the mentorship and my confidence again grew, but there was definitely like an initial like blow to my confidence yep. <laughs> at the beginning. Yeah, so. um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I felt like early on, uh, I felt more, I don't want to say attacked, that's not the right word, even though at sometimes it <laughs> did know. feel like you were being targeted. <laughs> Like there, right. there was just so many questions. They're like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? 
oh, well, why'd you do that? Why three <laughs> sets of 10? And early on, I was like, uh -huh. oh my God, everything I'm doing is wrong. <laughs> but then- Right, yeah, that's what I thought. Oh, like uh, over time, you're like, well, no, 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 no. Like as you actually started to like sit down and think about it and the overwhelmingness of like being in this new job, this new situation, as all of that stuff settled down, you started to realize like, well, they're not really attacking me. They just, they want to know what my clinical decision-making is. They want to know what my clinical reasoning is, which is why you do a residency in the first place, basically, is to become a better clinical reasoner. I mean, among other things, but mm -hmm. clinical reasoning is obviously a big aspect of that. If you want to be a good clinician, you have to have good yeah. uh, clinical reasoning. So I think once I yeah. realized that and started to settle down into like, why are they asking me this question right now? Rather than I did something wrong or early on, even like getting defensive, like, well, this is why I did this. And then like rambling on an answer and then you get to the end of your ramble and you realize like, why did I do that? <laughs> so <laughs> I think yeah. for, for me, that was also a big change that, uh, that you mentioned was like just being more accepting of like feedback incoming and having a reason for why you're doing the things that you're doing. And I think that's one of, honestly, one of the biggest things I walk away with is, I mean, I haven't treated a patient in a little while now, but having a reason behind <laughs> every action and decision that you make rather than just going through the motions, uh, like early mm -hmm. in residency, I know personally for me, I was like, checking boxes, basically, like, as if you were still a student, mm -hmm. did I do, did I get all of this subjective information? Oh, forgot medications, can't proceed until I go back and ask them about medications. <laughs> Whereas over time, obviously, yeah. like experience, you get better at it. And the more patients you interact with, you get better at it. But I think just having those mentors there to guide you and showing you what's more important to focus your time and energy on and not just check boxes, but truly have intent behind the decisions that you're making. And if you forget something, who cares? You can do it the next time they right. come back, assuming that they're <laughs> going to come back. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, assuming they do come back, which I usually do. Yeah, they usually come back. It, there's um, a reason they're coming in the yeah. first place. <laughs> so Exactly. <laughs> um, and then... I guess my last comment on the confidence thing will be before I decided I wanted to do a residency. Um, I had listened to like a quick podcast episode. I think it was like Mike Reynolds podcast. Okay. Um, and they were asking people about residencies, sort of like what we're talking about. Um, and he did say, I always remember like, don't do a residency just to gain confidence. Right. Um, and I a hundred percent agree with that. Um, and that shouldn't be anybody's reason for doing residency. But I do think it is a helpful way to gain confidence in what you're doing. Right. Um, so it's just a plus side yeah, <laughs> of doing I, residency, but it shouldn't I, be the purpose. <laughs> no, it, I completely agree with you. I don't think that confidence is enough reason alone to pursue a residency. You should be passionate about the area that you want to go into. Uh, and learn as much about that particular area as possible, you're going to get confidence with clinical experience. Um, I just right. think that doing a residency, it's an added bonus that you're probably going to get confidence a little bit sooner. Yes, I agree. <laughs> so kind of going off of that a little bit um, and like 
who you were then versus who you are now as a clinician, I think it kind of fits nicely to talk about like, I know you might hear in other podcasts or on TV or in like, if you're talking to a clinician that is, has years more experience than you, I feel like a lot of people have like this defining moment and when they recognize like their, or when they recognize their transition from being like truly entry level to now having this more methodological approach and having reason behind everything that they're doing, was there like this defining moment in your residency program that kind of transformed who you were as a clinician? Um, I wouldn't say I, well, I have, I have like a scenario in mind, but I don't know if this is like the defi defining moment of, you know, where I am now, but um, I think it goes along with the, the things we've already been talking about, like trusting that you are, you know, doing the right things, you are helping people and being the, the PE that you want to be, um, is I, yeah, I had a patient coming into um, the rec center. So the clinic where we normally get the young, healthy, athletic um, type of patients. Uh, we also worked in the pro bono clinic in North Philadelphia. We saw, um, you know, uh, an array of things and a lot of the patients there had more chronic diseases. But um, this patient that came in to the rec center uh, she was uh, young, um, but she had a quite extensive background of um, like physical injuries, but uh, also some psychosocial uh, components to her care and, and what she was presenting with. And it, it was early in residency, but it wasn't like first month of residency. Mm -hmm. um, so I had this one part of me like, you know, you have those two people, the angel and the devil on your shoulders. <laughs> so I had the, you like the devil part of me sitting on my shoulder, like, all right, complex case. Like I still have to, you know, she came in with two different like hurting body parts, yeah. her back and her foot. So I should look at, you know, everything to do with the back, everything to do with her foot, um, maybe split it up in two days because yeah. it might take a while to do the initial evaluation. You know what I mean? And then the other part of me that's like, well, why don't we just like sit here and listen to what she has to say right. and then like go from there. Like, don't overthink this. Don't overthink this. <laughs> um, so balancing that and all that's going on in my head as she's sitting in front of me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but really it, it turns into just, I, I decided, all right, I, you know, let me just listen to her story um, and I'll just go with the flow. And if I look at one thing, that's fine. Or if I look at everything, amazing. Right. Um, and she, she starts telling me about her uh, long pain history, um, things she's been through and what her goals are for coming to physical therapy. She tried physical therapy many times in the past and it didn't really work out. Um, and I think we spent the entire evaluation like just talking and I decided, yeah, I looked at a few, a few things, some range of motion or just like how she was moving, but more big picture things, not like special tests. And, um, I decided to spend like the 15, 20 minutes I had left really just um, explaining what I think I could help her with in physical therapy. And it wasn't like getting her back to pain-free a hundred percent. 
it, you know, it wasn't about that. It was more about right. like how I can help. And yeah. I think initially coming into PT school, at least, and then even beginning of residency, like you want to help people like be a hundred percent, you know, and that's not always the case. And you have to step back and think like, well, how can I, what can I do to help her? You know, it's not going to be getting rid of her pain. And really it wasn't. Um, and so, so we spent the time talking and then I remember she left and I remember saying to my mentor, like, you know, I don't know if she's going to come back. (laughs) I feel like I did like absolutely nothing. You know, like I did not, like, you know, I told her like, she's probably still going to have pain and like, you didn't give her any, you know, (laughs) right. Like I gave her like nothing. Um, but she did, she came back. It was like two weeks later. Well, and then I'm thinking like, Oh, she's definitely not come back. She didn't schedule anything. I didn't, you know, I hadn't heard anything, but she came back two or three weeks later. And, uh, she said, just thinking about all the things we talked about, she already was like more positive. Right. Um, she decided to like get back on her bike and which had been going well and she wasn't having like that much pain with it. Um, and then she was ready to, to work. And I really only saw her like in increments then from there mm-hmm. on out, like every three weeks or so um, until actually COVID hit and, and we closed our clinics down, yeah. but to watch and, and she made improvements like each time. And again, yeah. it was like, I wasn't giving her like a million things to do and I wasn't, um, like throwing all these like cool PT stuff at her, but I really was just like being there as like, like a coach almost right. and like listening yeah. to her. And so I feel like back to, Oh, is this the defining moment? I'm not sure that that is like the defining moment, but it is a change that I saw in myself and like the care that I could yeah. give is like setting expectations um, and being like open to discussion and, and yeah. how physical therapy can help somebody. And what do you think about that recognition of angel on this side, devil on this side, <laughs> like super anatomical. I'm going to look at everything yeah. for your back, everything for your ankle versus let's take a step back. Let's listen to the patient. Let's hear what she has to say. And then we'll go from there. Um, what, what do you think about, like, what was that light bulb moment? Like, aha, this is how I should proceed with this patient. Was it the, was it a mentor? Was it the culmination of the things you had learned up until that point? Was it someone tapping Mm -hmm. you on the shoulder saying, not that way, this way? Like what for you allowed you to recognize option B instead of just going down option A that I think a lot of us early clinicians are guilty Mm -hmm. to or guilty of? Yeah. Um, would probably say, well, yeah, I'm going to say the, the biggest portion would be mentorship. Mm-hmm. Um, mentorship in residency and actually had a, a really, really good mentor um, on one of my outpatient clinicals um, at the University of Florida. And they're like for myself, I am somebody that overthinks like everything I'm going to do because um, I like to be prepared. I don't like failure. So I have like this internal chatter constantly right. um so that tends to be like that tends to be i guess like the devil on my shoulder like always telling me like like my mind's racing you know i gotta do this gotta do that overthinking things so with mentorship um and the mentors that i've had uh not only like something i'm aware of but you know they also see that and it's it was about like trusting that i can sit back um you know i will know what to do like i don't have to 
have like a dialogue planned in my head. Yeah. Um, I don't have to have like a script of like how to do an initial eval, trusting that I can like sit back and just listen to somebody's story. Um, so I, I think for me, it was like molding that trust in myself and the mold came from like the mentorship that I had, you know, throughout residency. Cause even after that moment, you know, I think I still struggled with that sometimes, but it got better. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a really good example and I, I really do relate to it a lot, particularly when you're, when we were jumping back and forth between treating patients at the rec center and then going to the 11th street, which is more of that chronic pain population. Um, a lot of them come from like the minority background. And I was like, Early on, I, I recognized, and it was pointed out to us multiple times throughout the residency, is why are we treating these patients differently? What is it about walking mm -hmm. out of one clinic and walking into the other that you're changing what you're doing? Because shouldn't that standard of care be the same based on the evidence that we have to make our decisions? And I was mm -hmm. like, yeah. At first, I was like, oh, yeah, sure, sure. But then as I moved through residency and had more experience working in both of those clinics, I think it really started to click a lot more of recognizing, well, why did I do this with this patient in the rec center where I have this patient in 11th street with the same exact thing, but yet I'm treating it a little bit differently. And I mm -hmm. think there's, there are some reasons that go into it. Like obviously contextual factors are really going to impact what you do. Um, but a good example is like, say you have like an ACL patient in the rec center and an ACL uh, patient that had an ACL injury in the, at the 11th street center. Why would you not push the patient at 11th street just as hard as you push the patient at the rec center? Because you want to make mm -hmm. both patients better. So why would you change what you're doing to make, uh, to impact that like outcome in care? And I think that that was a pretty, um, big moment for me as well as, I mean, obviously the mentors help get you there as well. Um, but I think for me, honestly, the, like the defining moment, if I had to put that title or label on it was earlier on, I don't remember the exact month that this happened. I think it was like two or three months into the residency, but I was, there was a direct access patient that I was going to treat and at that point, I was still kind of checking boxes, going through the motion. And this was a direct access patient. So I was, yes, I was trying to figure out what was going on, but the history was a little bit unclear. And then I thought I knew what was going on with the patient by the time I got to the evaluation component of it or the examination component of it. But then in the examination component of it, I'm just going through the motions again. I'm checking those boxes. And by the time I got to the end of the eval, I was like, hmm. Still don't know really what's going on with you, but I, I didn't share that with him. I was like, well, I think you either have a meniscal <laughs> yeah. tear. I think you might have a potentially like a small ACL tear, or maybe you have a little bit of both. And I was like, it's basically at that point, I was like, the reality is, is we got to get your knee stronger. We got to get you more confident and walking in it. And then even like, I'm so thankful that the next day there was a time conflict and that he couldn't see me and he went to one of the mentors instead. And the mentor, my, this mentor evaluated him and texted me after saying, we need to talk. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it, it happened exactly that way, but it was probably pretty close yeah. to it. 
And I was like, okay, <laughs> you sure, never want whatever. That text. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're, I don't remember if we were talking on the phone specifically or if it was a text or email exchange, but basically what ended up happening is that he had a full ACL rupture that I had just completely overlooked. Um, and it was probably an old ACL rupture or a, an ACL like tear that was more recently yeah. ruptured within like the past few weeks. And I had just been so yeah. focused on checking the boxes and going through the eval to move forward with the next step that I had completely overlooked, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? And why am I asking these questions? And why am I doing these specific special tests rather than just going down the check boxes mm -hmm. of oh, knee pain, got to rule out IT band, got to rule out lumbar spine if it's insidious. <laughs> and I think that moment. How did you do did you do your ACL special test? I, yeah, I did. That's the thing. I did do the ACL yeah. special test, but I was more concerned at that point about going through and checking the boxes. Like, mm -hmm. had I done yep. my meniscal test? Did I do the ACL test? Rather than doing the tests and actually looking at what the response was. And so right. missing that yeah. test and then... Fortunately, um, I was able to see that patient again with, with my mentor in the clinic then. We had scheduled a session with him, and I went through the ACL exam again, and it was pointed out. He's like, do those two Lachman tests feel the same to you? And I was like, no. He's like, that's a positive Lachman test. He was like, this is what yeah. is a complete ACL rupture feels like in a Lachman test. And so for me, that was the big oh, aha man. defining moment that I was like, wow, I need to take a step back and like not just check boxes. I need to actually sit, like think through my process, my thought processes and clinical decision and differential diagnosis of like what I think is going on and then what I'm seeing in the examination. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> First, I would know want that text but I, I definitely got that throughout residency yeah. as well <laughs> call me um we didn't talk no um I you know that's this idea of like checking the boxes which you know we we sort of talked about but especially when it comes to checking the boxes for um diagnosing something that they're coming in with and you have heard me talk about this and it, see actually not that long ago but what it's not only checking the boxes but it's like what is this telling you and what does it mean right. especially when it comes to those special tests because that's something that I definitely think is eye-opening at least residency opened my eyes to is you get out of PT school well in PT school you learn all your special tests you have a practical on them so you're like got to make sure I do this right you're memorizing like the name of it and like what the maneuver is and maybe what it tells you. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you're studying for boards and you have to re-memorize all that stuff so you can pass the boards yeah. <laughs> and then you get into the clinic and here I am and you are like just checking these boxes. All right. Did I do Nears and Hawkins and you know, something for shoulder impingement, but residency really took me like, okay, but what does that mean? Does that mean? Right. And, and, in order to understand what it means, you do have to understand like the clinical value of those special tests. Yeah. So, you know, what are their like clinometric properties? Are they even good? Um, and that's something that 
in PT school I didn't care about. I didn't memorize yeah. if they were what their specificity was or their likelihood yep. ratios. <laughs> and I still don't have that memorized. <laughs> but like you have an idea of, you know, if you get a positive means that is very, you know, it's got a good specificity. So if it's positive, like probably has an ACL there. But if right. you get like positive like joint tenderness and positive McMurray's okay both for the meniscus but like does that really like what is that even telling you it tells right. you maybe there was something with the meniscus so it's like interpreting what you're actually doing to make your clinical decisions and that's something that had I not done a residency it may have taken me a long time to really figure out <laughs> that it's more than just checking the boxes and it's about interpreting your special tests um, and and what they're telling you yeah, I agree. I think that residency basically turbocharged the clinical decision making and making you actually think about all of the incoming information and taking it for what it actually is, rather than just saying, well, you know, positive, like, PCL test or whatever, and then moving on. Like, I was very guilty of in that moment. But I, I don't think that or as I progressed throughout residency, those moments I thought were happening less and less. Um, mm -hmm. With the more regular, with the regular discussion with mentors and the constant onslaught of questioning and like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? What does this mean to you? Um, that was a huge thing that residency changed for me. So as much as I wish this didn't happen because my ego was hurt a little bit on that moment um, and I'm being a little vulnerable here sharing that with everybody, yeah. but I'm so thankful it happened because I think that that was the moment that basically changed me moving forward throughout the rest of the residency program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Oh, I'm just, so what, I guess going off of that, then uh, we had this nice discussion about like who you were then versus who you are now. Was residency anything like you expected it to be? <laughs> I think, <laughs> another good question. I think, um, I'll say I have, to, my answers are yes and no. Okay. <laughs> but yes, because I was, yes, because I expected that I was going to go to this program, you know, it's like 13 or 12 and a half months long, um, and it's going to be super busy, and it's going to challenge me. Um, so I had that mentality, and that is exactly what it was. Um, but then also, no, because I don't think I realized how much I would grow like I knew I would grow and that's why I wanted to do it but like how much um I would grow so it was almost like like more than what I expected in, in that aspect I guess mm -hmm. what about you yeah I mean well before I tell you my thoughts on that I want to mm -hmm. kind I want to ask you a follow-up question on um one of the points that you made so I, what, as far as like, you knew what to expect from, it's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be super busy. What mm -hmm. advice would you give anybody that's considering a residency? Um, like any take home message that you would give them to look more into 
before they just sign up to do a residency program. Because it is busy, you're right mm -hmm. on that, but there are also things that come up that you had no idea that were going to be a part of residency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's 100%. You have to be flexible, mm -hmm. um, like, in your schedule. And, you know, I think, actually, I did hear from, like, other residents in the past, or maybe it was... <laughs> Maybe it was our, not other residents, but it was the director, like when he was explaining the residency, um, saying like, you know, we may even be busy, like on the weekends, like yeah. you know, we're going to be that busy. So to, to say that, like I had free weekends, um, oh, so you know, there was, there was some time. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes on Sundays, like I had to finish some notes and like, you know, prepare, but that's almost any other, like any other job. Yeah. So, um, so I will say, you know, I, I made my week schedule Monday through Friday. You're super busy and to be flexible because it, for us, at least in this residency, we're bouncing between potentially three clinics, going to physician's offices, um, you know, going to the, the anatomy lab, things like that. Like we're all over the city, but, um, and then between that, like, when are you going to get your working done? Like, studying done for you know we have projects done that we had mm -hmm. to complete so it's fine time between there and being flexible with that but you know if you you know pt school is not that much different at times nope. so so if you you know if that's how you worked hard in pt school then you will absolutely do fine in a residency right. so i don't think it, it needs to like scare anybody away uh, I, I liked our program being the length of time that it was like about a year long. Cause some residencies are longer than that. Yep. Um, and that's one thing that drew me to doing the residency at Drexel was the timeline. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just kind of going off of what you said, I think that flexibility is lit, like the key word because they can tell you all of these things that you're going to be doing, but then things can also come up that the, that would be a unique opportunity for you to go and experience and, they're going to find a way for you to go experience mm -hmm. that. So I think flexibility is a huge part of it as far as like what to, or as far as what to expect when you're looking at residencies and like, or uh, key characteristics that you should try to have as you're going into a residency program. But I think for me, as far as what I expected, I didn't really I don't know if I had the same yes and no, like I knew what to expect uh, situation that you had. I think mine mm -hmm. was, I was taking the things that people were saying verbatim, not to hold them accountable to it, but uh, while well, you're experiencing it now, therefore you know what's happening. So for me, when I was looking at residencies, I, I was applying to a couple different models. Uh, so well, I think one was like a hybrid model I applied to Drexel's, which was like that university-based clinic. It was very structured. I looked mm -hmm. at a private practice residency that seemed to be structured a little bit differently. So because I applied to different models, I didn't really know how each, like how the residency would fit within each of those models. So I was questioning myself, well, how is residency going to be different if I choose to go down this private practice path? versus choosing to do this university path. So that was a little bit where my ex like lack of expectation mm. came is I was I, I really didn't know what to expect. And like, how, how would I know if I made a good decision on this residency program versus another residency program? Yeah. And I mean, 
it's basically like, you know, okay, doing residency versus not doing residency. You know, we right. don't know what it's like or how far we would have like come as a clinician had we not done a residency. Right. Um, so whenever people ask a question specific like that, I'm like, oh, it's so hard to answer because, you know, I could, I guess I could have done fine, like not yeah. doing residency, but I don't regret doing residency. Like it did so much for me too. Right. <laughs> and uh, honestly, I think we probably would still be, regardless of if we did a residency or not, we would still be sitting here without a job right now. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, that's true. Or furloughed or, or whatever. Or furloughed, yeah. yeah. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's a good uh, response to my point. Like you really don't know. Um, but for me hearing our previous residents talk about it, like when I was asking questions like, well, how does this compare to PT school? And maybe this is just their personalities, but I, the responses mm -hmm. I got were like, it's so busy. You're going to be so much busier than PT school, but you're still going to have time. You just have to like prioritize your work stuff to make sure that you have time for the things that you want to do as far as like work-life balance. So I walked into the residency thinking like, this is going to be insane. But within a couple mm -hmm. of weeks, I was like, this isn't really a whole lot more than PT school. I'm, you're still, right. you're out all day, you come back and you still have stuff to do. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I didn't really. Um, but one thing, one thing that I had talked to a previous resident about, like, all right, what advice do you have, like, you know, going into the residency? And it's the most cliche advice, but I stuck to it and like, I felt like it just worked out um, best for me mentally was really taking it like just do, just focus on one, one day at a time because you know when they sit down and show you your schedule and what you have to do like in the next three months and how mm -hmm. many projects you have to do and like labs you have to help with and and yeah everything that we have to do in residency it can be like so overwhelming yeah like when am I gonna like how am I gonna get that done but sticking really to you know focus on the day ahead of you and then that also helps being in the present moment, which is going to help like your care with your patients as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I remember specifically relating to like the COVID, COVID-19 shutdown, our list of responsibilities just kept growing and growing and growing. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, oh my gosh, we only have like three months left. There's no way we're getting all of this stuff done. I but, know. But then, yeah, taking a step back, you're like, all right, well, what do I need to do today? Let me do it. And then you do a couple of things and you realize, oh, well, it's definitely not as unreasonable as it initially seemed to be. So, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I think... I think part of that, like reframing of the way that you're um, thinking almost and meeting these expectations, but also experiencing things that you weren't expecting. I think part of that has to deal with like with internal reflection and thinking about how you are acting in the moment and how you have acted on the moment and then being critical of yourself. So thinking about what was my response to this particular event after it had happened. And then as we get more expert level, we'll be able to do that in action and thinking about our response and being critical of our actions in the actual moment. Mm -hmm. um, but I know you wanted to talk about this idea of being critical of yourself and addressing these biases you have. And I think that that fits pretty nicely with this idea of like, you had some expectations met, but there were things that came up that you certainly were not expecting mm -hmm. to happen. Yeah, no, definitely. Like that is like the part that I'm like, oh, wow. Like I, I grew so much. Like this is something that, you know, okay, you're going to residency, you hear 
um, you're going to develop your decision making and your critical thinking, but like, okay, what does that actually mean? You know what I mean? Right. Like, you hear those buzzwords and you're like, yeah, like my clinical decision making is very good now. <laughs> like, what yeah. does that even mean? <laughs> um, um, so, you know, so one thing that I realized in man, at least for me, was this idea of like being um, critical of my thought processes and also my, my biases. Um, and so I'll just dive into that a little bit. But an example that I have is being interested in outpatient orthopedics. Um, I, I had a really good clinical um, and I also had a, an okay clinical in orthopedics during PT school. Mm-hmm. And I came in, you know, my, my personal bias for treating was like this active exercise only um, approach, mm-hmm. which I'm still definitely biased towards. So I'm going to throw that out there. But to a point, but I came into the residency with almost like that personal bias taking over my thought processes by pushing aside like any other intervention that was not active exercise um, because it didn't fit into my you know what I thought would help right. them. And there's like a tremendous amount of evidence for an active approach you know, exercise by itself uh, will do like, you know, exponential compared to another more passive intervention. And that's why I'm still a little bit biased towards Mm -hmm. it. But, but, but again, my point is like, I was shutting out those other um, options. So let's say, you know, someone that's coming in with acute ankle pain. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, my thought process was always like, okay, like, what can they do, you know, to, that's going to be healthy for the goal, for their mobility, um, getting them back to what they want to do. Like, sure. You could throw some ice on there for the pain. And like, that was it. But learning that there was some um, like manual therapy techniques that can actually help them initially in the first, you know, two visits. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have to do that the whole time. Um, then, then I should consider those things. And that's just a very like small example, but, but I definitely was trending towards like shutting out, those other opportunities of using let's say manual therapy or even um certain modalities like um a tens unit like again you know there is evidence for a tens unit for acute pain help you know get them over the hump to do an exercise it's not saying i'm like want this person to use e-stim all the time right um you're not gonna and, and i'm not gonna patient, use it all the time right you're not gonna build that extra unit for using tens on everybody <laughs> Right. But, but I guess that's just my example of like, all right, um, you know, I need to acknowledge these biases like that. I have them and yes, maybe I still think it's the better way to do things, but it's not the only way. And I think I was going towards like, this could be the only way. And I came into situations where I would have a patient, um, that was very similar to a patient that like my mentor was treating, mm-hmm. but say both like had knee pain and you know both similar age group um injury and you know their patients like getting better faster than my patient and i'm like well what's you know why and it and possibly it was because they were helping with their pain initially more like doing a manual therapy technique or you know using like a a, a leuco tape for their for their patellofemoral pain where i wasn't and this was initial like initially early on in in residency that I was noticing these things and then also like asking about them like 
you know, I'm just throwing the patient out into the water and saying, Oh, like, don't worry about the pain too much. Like, let's just get your quad stronger right. and hit stronger and you'll be better. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm like going past these other options. So that was something I definitely realized and now make better decisions um, towards. Yeah. So what do you think that, I don't want to come back to this defining moment thing, but what do you think happened that resulted in your improved recognition of biases and then uh, trying to not change your biases? Because I don't know if you can truly change your biases, but being more Mm -hmm. willing to try other things with patients. What do you think helped transition you and get you over? This Mm -hmm. is the way I've always done it. Therefore, this is the way I'm going to continue doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, it definitely had to do with just like coming in each day and being like, right, I need to have an open mind. Um, you know, that's what I'm here to learn in residency is like learning from mentors and from you know, what, what does the evidence say and from experiences that I'll have. So I needed to like remind myself to like keep that door open mm-hmm. because I'm obviously a new PT. Like it is way too early to be closing that door. Right. Um, so, so I think it was that, but then also that example of like seeing how, cause not only do your mentors like have that one-on-one time with you, but at least for us in our residency, we got to work alongside them mm-hmm. and you could, you know, they were treating patients at the same time. So I could see um, what they were doing. You know, I also had patients, they had patients, but what are they doing? And why are their patients getting better? And why are some of them not? You know, and, and you can also have that discussion. So I think it also was the mentorship aspect, um, which we keep coming back to, obviously. Right. <laughs> but, it, it, but it was something internally, too, that told me, like, you know, I'm doing the residency to learn. Like, you got to keep all my doors open to kind of absorb. And then I can pick and choose what, you know, what I think works best for me and based on the evidence and things like that. Right. And obviously based on my patients. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that the idea of working alongside your mentors, but also your colleagues, and mm-hmm. as as some as there are some drawbacks of having a very small clinic in a busy gym, I think that one of the pros is that you're always aware or mostly aware of what everybody else's patients are doing because it is such a small area that you basically have eyes on everybody almost and you see things that you've never thought of before or didn't consider trying. So I think that just the setting itself, the clinical environment that we treated in was potentially one one way to overcome those biases of, well, I've always done it this way, therefore I'm going to continue doing it this way. And seeing PTs, our colleagues and our mentors trying different things with their patients and they're getting, they're having success with it. And then that allows you to internalize that visualization that you're seeing. You're seeing that success and it allows you to question yourself, well, why am I not doing this with my patients? Was there a reason why I'm not doing this with my patients? And then you can go into your whole evidence-based discussion approach and is there evidence Mm -hmm. for it? And usually in a clinic such as ours, um, almost always, there's always some type of evidence being implemented to justify the decisions being made. But I, I do think that the point that you made about working next to your colleagues and mentors is, at least for me, it was a big reason why uh, you put aside some of those biases and are more likely to consider other ways of doing things. And honestly, for me, I don't, 
I, obviously everyone has their biases. I'm by no means like on a high horse here at all. I have a lot of biases, but I think I was fortunate to recognize in my physical therapy schooling that there were other ways of doing things. And so that's one of the reasons why I didn't go on to pursue uh, a residency after or from the same universities because I wanted to expose myself to different ways of doing things to see all of it from multiple mentors and they all have their own ways of doing things they put more emphasis on certain things than some of the other mentors do so for me I think I was fortunate to recognize that there there isn't really one right way to do things I think that as long as you're getting your patients better and you're trying to implement evidence-based practice as best as you can, I think that you're on the right track. And I don't think, I think that sometimes we fault ourselves by challenging or challenging ourselves too much by, well, it's either right or wrong. But I think it, I mean, it comes back to physical therapy school. It depends. Like it, <laughs> it, it truly I don't think that there's not a right and a wrong answer. You just need to constantly be challenging yourself and questioning yourself. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is there a better way to do it? And I think if you do that, you're going to continue like your journey of professional growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree with, with that. Um, and another like tangent, I, I was going to talk about this idea of the bias. Mm -hmm. Um, is like we all have our like personal biases and they obviously are developed from like our past experiences and um you know our level of knowledge and things like that but there are other biases so that you know we, we at least learned about and were mentored on was biases in like the decisions that we are making um and this is like an example that i've talked to you about before and my mentors but i I didn't even realize I necessarily had this bias until it came up more than once, I guess, in my initial evaluations was um, if I was seeing somebody that was not direct access and they came in with a prescription for physical therapy from a doctor I would read what it was. And then I would listen to their history and then be like, Oh, you know, it does kind of sound like they have right. this diagnosis. So for example, um, a patient that, had that was diagnosed with, the SI joint pain. So he comes in and he had um, back pain and I had already read the, read the diagnosis from the doctor. So I immediately went to like focus on the SI joint versus anything else that I even heard in his history. I kind of was pushing aside. So that's like called this um, confirmation bias. So you're basically just confirming the, the diagnosis that they already had written on the piece right. of paper. And so I went through the SI joint, um, cluster the provocation tests and he only had like one maybe two positive out of the six so you know going back to what we're talking about special tests what does that even mean you know at the time in my initial eval I'm not interpreting what that means I'm just like oh yeah he does have pain at his SI joint so he must have SI joint dysfunction right um you know and I'm anchoring on that but really like you know you interpret then I sit back later on I'm looking at this case and I'm, I'm thinking about it like, okay, what does it mean? It means he's got a low likelihood that he even has SI joint dysfunction because he only had like uh, one or two out of the six special tests positive. And then also based on his other history and like the other movements that I had him do in the initial evaluation, 
he didn't really even fit in that SI joint, you know, classification. Mm-hmm. He was in the, he should have been in like the treatment based classification. Um, right. So it's just real. It was like things like that, those type of biases in my decision making that I, I previously did not even acknowledge. So now it's something that, okay, I acknowledge that these things can happen and it makes me be able to like zoom out and kind of look at what I'm doing and why I'm doing them and how I'm coming to those decisions. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's a really good example. I, I know I personally have also been guilty of that, of being persuaded by <laughs> you read the script and you're like, it says uh, like, hip tendinopathy or greater trochanteric bursitis and you're like well it must be if it's coming from the physician and then during your eval you're digging a little bit closer and you're like the signs aren't really matching what they're saying but it if the physician's saying it it must be greater trochanteric bursitis Mm -hmm. rather than taking in the information interpreting it and letting it reshape your that global view of what you think is going on with the patient um, so I think that yeah. that's a, a, soup, a really good example. And I can personally speak that it's something that I think I've gotten a lot better at, or I, I don't know if mm-hmm. I've gotten better at it, but I've gotten better at a lot, not letting that confirmation bias impact like the final diagnosis, if you were to say. Uh, and honestly, one of the things that I did early on was not looking at the referral diagnosis until after I already did the evaluation. Like I just would go and see what the joint was or what the body part was and then go through, get my history, go through the evaluation. And then after the fact, look at the diagnosis or the ICD-10 codes that the physician was saying. And sometimes it would match up and sometimes it wouldn't. (laughs) And in the cases that it wouldn't, I would often just revert to like generic ICD-10 codes, just like right knee pain or whatever, because you're going to treat the patient how you're going to treat the patient based on the things you see in front of you. Um, And I can't speak that I've ever had any problems from when that became a problem on the physician side of things. Right. Yeah. Obviously, you know, when it comes to diagnosing then we're getting down to like the, doesn't matter if it's pathway anatomic or not, but you know, I don't want to dive too far. Yeah. But I will say, you know, for the most part, physicians you know, come out with a prescription. The physicians are, you know, right on the money with what we agree, what we agree on. Obviously, there can be instances where that's not the case. But I think a lot of that confirmation bias came along with being a new grad too. You know, we don't have a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. Like I, I kind, of, and that also came along with my lack of confidence in what I was doing because. You know, here I am, like fresh out of PT school, and maybe I don't think it's SI joint dysfunction, but uh, this physician who's been practicing in sports medicine for 20 years thinks it is. So obviously they're right. You know, that's like thoughts that would go through my mind. Yeah. Um, And it was just lack of confidence, lack of experience, and then also, you know, not interpreting my own physical exam and thing and history to like the degree it could have been interpreted. Yeah. And I think that the mentors were an integral part of that transition of that early entry level clinician and then getting to a point where you're now questioning yourself and challenging yourself to not just settle for the things that you're reading, but really trying to get a true understanding of what's actually happening with the patient. And 
I mean, I'm sure you feel the same way, but the having that mentorship, and I know we keep bringing it up to that, but honestly, that's probably the biggest reason why you're doing a residency to begin with is the mentorship. But I just felt like that it's so integral, like having that mentorship is literally transformative for you as a clinician. Yeah, I agree 100%. So, so them questioning, <laughs> questioning our every move, you know, why, why are you doing this? Why are you doing right. this? I think is so that we just have it on repeat. So when we don't have the mentors, yeah. the questions still go off in your mind. <laughs> I think you might be onto something, Kelly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll just have to have uh, Sarah's, or Sarah T, Sarah W, Noel or Rob on the show sometime and see what the method to the madness is. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, but kind of going along with this idea of being critical and biases and things like that, what, because I know as we walk away from a residency now, we're taught to implement evidence into practice. So what do you think would separate a residency trained clinician from implementing evidence from a non-residency trained, at least an early, an entry-level clinician that's not residency trained as far as like, or as far Mm -hmm. as reading a research article and then do you immediately implement it or is there something that residency taught you that you're now like, that you're now, well, hold up, wait a second, before we just do this, let's take a step back. Yeah. I mean, I think it has to do with, like being critical um, and uh, sorry, the interpretation of the research. Um, Well, actually I have two points, I guess, on the research. One, going back to my biases is, um, you know, keeping my, my mind open, I guess, to reading what research is coming out, but not immediately like shutting it down. Like this doesn't fit nicely into my little, personal bias box so I'm Mm -hmm. not going to read it that's number one Um, but that's not necessarily something I guess from residency that anyone could could like realize that as long as I keep an open mind but I guess it's the interpretation of the research you know you take research classes in PT school Um, you know remember those classes that you take and you do it because you have to and they're on the boards and it helps it definitely helps like you read articles and what's coming out and being able to implement them but I feel like like focus that um again it's like asking those questions like when you're reading them you know what are they doing in this study and what is the quality of it um breaking breaking down even parts of like the methods and it's not like i'm spending that much time on every single article i read but you can i almost like can get a gist like reading what the quality is like um sooner rather Mm -hmm. than later like I used to have to like read the whole thing and like maybe not even really understand some of the things that they were doing in the study. And now like I have a better understanding. Yeah. And I also noticed that change when I, you know, everything going on with coronavirus right now and you, there are news headlines everywhere and you hear different things every day. Um, people have these different like arguments on wearing masks and all these things. But I, I noticed myself like having this like, critical interpretation of what's going on like mm-hmm. even when I listen to those things I'm like well okay they're saying this but like you know 
oh, did they even like have a control? Like there's just right. like random, you know, and I'm like, oh, wow, I'm like a huge loser. <laughs> no, like, I, I totally get it. It makes you become super, super uh, like not hyper-focused, but you become very vigilant to when someone says something and you're like, wait a second, what are your facts to make that statement? Right. Like if you're watching like Fox News or CNN and they're citing their own poll, well, of course it's going to show the point you're trying to make. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me being like the residency and being critical to research, b besides learning how to read forest plots, because we know, we know we're experts <laughs> in that now, we're close to experts. <laughs> but I think for me, just becoming hypervigilant of research articles and knowing not every research article is good. There are yeah. great research articles out there and, and they're easy to recognize, I think, but I more so recognizing where research articles go wrong and recognizing the like validity and or your external validity and the applicability. Does, is this something that I'm doing with my patient or is there a reason that I'm not doing it and identifying mm -hmm. what those reasons are you're not doing it? And I know this is something that came up in our journal clubs quite frequently with the systematic reviews and how, oh, it's this gold standard of literature mm -hmm. review, whatever the systematic review says goes. Mm -hmm. But when you get into the systematic reviews and look at some of the studies that they're including, a systematic review is really only as good as the articles that they're including. So if mm -hmm. you have a systematic review of 14 articles that are all rated poorly and there's high risk of bias, they're, if they go do a meta-analysis and their uh, homogeneity scores are off the chart for there's, there's so many differences in the studies, we can't even draw conclusions. It, being able to recognize that and not just saying, well, if this systematic review says this, then therefore I should do this. And I'm, mm -hmm. that's another one of my big takeaways from residency is being able to read a research article and recognize what's good about it and what's bad about it. And even taking it a step further and having a discussion with someone else that has also read the article and getting their opinions on it. I can't tell you how many times things were brought up in the journal club articles that I didn't even think of. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah. That's what's great about like having a um, like colleagues around that are also, you know, interested in, in journal clubs and, right. and reading the research just so you can have like the discussion. Everyone's going to come with a different either point yeah. of view or just like different thing they took away from it that you can learn from. Yeah, I totally agree. So I know you talked about how you have this bias and preference towards <laughs> active <laughs> interventions. So we know you love exercise. <laughs> <laughs> how how has residency changed your exercise prescriptions and your intervention prescription? Because now you have this newfound knowledge of recognizing that you have a bias towards active <laughs> interventions. I know you talked about recognition yeah. of that bias, but how specifically has residency changed the way you're implementing these interventions to help your patients? Yeah. Um, honestly, it also comes back to the idea of being intentional. Um, and that was something I, you know, I always think I am intentional. I don't think, you know, I went into residency or being a PT, just like throwing out random things without any intention. So I definitely always had an intention, but, but like, could I define that 
And I think residency helped me define what my intention. So what I mean is for exercise prescription, um, why am I giving them uh, this many sets and this many reps and how heavy of a load that they are using? Because I used to just like guess. And a lot of the time I still am guessing or we still are guessing. It's like a trial and error with prescribing Mm -hmm. resistance training, let's say. Um, But I used to not like check back in with that. I would just like guess, prescribe, for example, you know, let's just go with the three sets of 10 um, at a certain load and then be like, okay, like, how does that feel? And I would just rely on like a subjective uh, description from the patient of like, yeah, it seems like it's kind of hard. I can do it. And I'm like, perfect. Like keep going. Um, But what residency made me like take a step back and, and then figure out like, is that the right prescription? Am I trying to just strengthen their muscle for uh, power, hypertrophy, endurance. Like, what am I trying to do here? And if so, am I doing the right things? And then I have an example of treating a um, college athlete who underwent ACL reconstruction. And so, you know, early on rehab, we're doing more load endurance, muscle training and neuromuscular control um, exercises and then I'm like, all right, well, we got to get our quad well, like stronger. So here I am just thinking I'm being intentional with my exercise prescription and all I'm relying on her subjective entirely, pretty much of, of how she feels. And she said she was feeling sore and she feels like she got a good workout. So I would document that and, and pat myself on the back and say, she's, you know, she's going to do great. And it wasn't until I uh, decided to test her isometric strength at 12 weeks post-op that I found out that she was walking around campus with only um, 30% uh, limb symmetry index uh, mm-hmm. for quads. So I'm like, how is she even like walking without a limp right now? I have no idea. <laughs> um, so it's like, now I've come to realize you also need to rely on some objective data, um, whether that is maybe a MVIC or a rep max testing or, even using something more standardized than just word of mouth, but like a, an RPE scale mm-hmm. for my exercise, like checking in with my exercise prescription. And that's something um, I've definitely improved upon. Right. And I think even going off of that, using current published guidelines to guide, to help guide what your goals are. So say you are going for strengthening and hypertrophy. Well, we know we can use the ACSM guidelines for, making sure that we're providing an appropriate intensity uh, to the patient so that they truly can get those changes. And I'm glad that you brought this up because I know you did your final project on like uh, reps in reserve or Mm. the RP using that standardized measure to kind of keep track of the intensity of it. Cause it can be hard. You can give your patient, if say you're doing leg press Mm -hmm. three sets of 10, How'd that feel? Uh, it was moderate. It was yeah. medium difficulty. That's what I always <laughs> used to say to my kid, my the kids that I was working with when I was in the peds. Is it yeah. easy, medium, or hard? <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like in this outpatient setting, you do need to be a little bit more precise than that because you are you are targeting whether it be the activation or you're truly going for strengthening and hypertrophy. Is it hard enough? 
They could mm -hmm. just be saying medium, is there something we can use to make sure that the patient is truly exercising as hard as they can? And I'm, I, I know you're a newfound expert in the re reps and reserve. <laughs> How can I and other listeners, if there are any, utilize an RPE or reps in reserve to kind of help guide our strengthening programs? <laughs> yeah, I am now a newfound expert in the RAR. <laughs> no, that is ridiculous. No, um, it's one of those things that I have been interested in because it's like the next hot topic when it comes to resistance training. Um, in the resistance training, so we've moved world, on from BFR. BFR is still a hot topic it's still as well. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> still number one. RAR is number two. <laughs> No, I mean, it was being talked about at, at CSM this year in like an exercise prescription um, lecture, which I think is awesome. So what I did was I was like an early adopter and, you know, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I'm going to try to use this in the clinic. So here I was trying to use RIR, which is this concept of reps and reserve um, during resistance training. You basically ask the person, all right, once they're done, they're set. How many more repetitions do you think? you could complete and they say oh, I think I could only lift the bar like two more times so then that would place you at you know if they could only lift it two more times and they're obviously working at a pretty high intensity um, so there are some data out there about like comparing it to a rep max mm -hmm. um, and a percentage of it but I was just using it and relying on like oh okay they you know they're telling me they can only lift like maybe three more times. Perfect. That's a good set. Um, take a rest and do another set at the same load and not even checking in with it mm -hmm. because I didn't even read too much of the research on the RAR. I read like one article. Now there's not a lot of evidence out there yet. It's they're They're starting to be using it and they compare it with an already established rating of perceived exertion. Um, what I've come to learn is that Number one, it works best in experienced weightlifters. So I'm, you know, if I'm using it on a patient that is not new to resistance training, they're not really going to know what their maximum, like they're able to lift. So they're right. not going to give me a good, they may say they can only do five more, but they don't know because they've, they've right. never really lifted these weights before. So that was a mistake that I was making. Um, and so I have, you know, it, it is still a good thing to use. Um, but I think you have to pick your, your patient wisely and then also teach them to use it. So one way I thought of like how you can use it on a patient that may not be too familiar with resistance training is to have them perform the exercise. You can have them do it, um, at the desired load and bring them to maximum failure. So basically like, all right, you're going to use the leg press hundred pounds, do as many reps as you can. Let's see how many that is. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're doing like they they're doing over 20. Okay. You have to increase the load because the more reps they can do, the harder it is to guess. Um, but let's say they do 10 and then they can't lift anymore. So you say, okay, so you feel what it feels like to, you know, literally not be able to lift the weight anymore. So right. that is your, um, that's basically your repetition maximum, your 10 repetition maximum. And it's going to be rated as a zero RIR, zero reps in reserve. You cannot lift a single thing more. So now you're going to use this, like this feeling of exertion and, you know, we're going to increase the weights and you're going to like, you can, you can teach them to stop at a certain point, like stop when you have two like RIR. So two reps left in reserve, 
or you can check back in with an already like prescribed exercise and say, hey, you know, they finished a set and mm-hmm. you haven't increased the load in a while. And you're saying, well, how many, like, what's your RIR? How many reps could you like continue to do? And if they're saying a lot, you're like, all right, well now it's time to increase the load. If they're saying that, ah, I still think I can only do, you know, one to two more reps. Um, they may be at that desired, um, you know, load. But again, when you look back into, does it correlate with the percent repetition maximum? That's when it gets a little tricky because in the clinic, like I'm not always doing a repetition maximum with them and then prescribing based on the percent rep max. That's like the gold standard of how to use it. As far as I know from what I've, you know, looked up and read about in the literature, but so it's, it's very interesting, but you have to use it in the, in the right context. Right. And to me, it seems like it is probably a little bit of a step up from just ballparking how intense the exercise is that you're giving to the patient. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely an easy way to check in um, with your patient and check in with the exercise prescription. So I still think it's, it's a good thing to use. Um, but again, you have to be intentional with it and kind of know and be be able to interpret um, because I definitely wasn't when I first started to use it. Just like (laughs) everything else, have a reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we've been chatting for a little while now. Um, Is there anything else that you really, really want to talk about that you experienced during residency? Um, If not, I have one final wrap-up question for you. Um, mm-hmm. but I just wanted to hear if you had any other like thoughts on the residency program that we didn't talk about. Um, I don't know. We covered a lot. I say you throw out the final question. Let's see what you got. All right. So my question to you is it, clearly residency had value to you. Mm. And it, it seems like you're a much better clinician because of the things that you've experienced and the mentorship that you re- have received. I know I personally am more comfortable in my ability as a clinician now, and I'm beyond thankful for the mentorship that we got. But overarching, and I guess I don't really know how well you'll be able to answer this question, but was residency worth it? And if you could do it again, like all over again, would you or would you not? Mm-hmm. I think uh, uh, residency was 100% worth it um, because of how much I've learned and how much I grew and, you know, feeling like I am like ready to get out into the, the workforce again and, and be a PT and, and move on with my career, um, continue to grow. I think it just laid a, a foundation that like I can build upon. Um, and, you know, my I would, I would obviously do it again based on what I just said, but also my advice maybe, you know, and this isn't how everyone does it, but I loved doing it right out of PT school. Some people like take some time off and then do a residency. Um, and if that works for obviously their, what they want and their life and lifestyle, then that's perfect for me. It worked um, better to do it right out of PT school just because um, it is a lot of, it's time consuming as we talked about sometimes a lot of residencies, the pay will be a little bit different um, than if you were to just go um, and get an entry level job. So for me, it worked best to do it right out of PT school. And I think it laid that foundation that I was looking for. Yeah. I I think that that's a great, uh, 
great way to look at having gone through a residency and I'm right on, right on board with you. I would a hundred percent, I'm a hundred percent satisfied that I did it. I don't really know how I would be different had I not gone through it, (laughs) but I'm, I'm extremely thankful that I did. And the things that I walk away with from doing it are, you can't put a price tag on it really. I mean, you can't, it's, you make sacrifices, but in the end for me, every single sacrifice was worth it. I, I think that we're both, and honestly, everybody that goes to a residency, I think that we're all set up to go through uh, and take our careers to the next step with regardless of whatever you do. If you want to teach, if you want to mentor the next cohort of residents, if you want to be a CI, if you just want to assume a more leadership role in your clinic, I think that residency has allowed us to do that. But despite all of these positive things saying towards residency, I still am not a firm believer that everybody should necessarily have to go through a residency. I do think there's value in everybody going through a residency, but residency is not for everybody. There are some Mm -hmm. people that are comfortable going through physical therapy school and just settling into a general clinic and they set their own goals for themselves. And I think that that's fine. I do think that, I like to think the best of everybody, that everybody wants to put themselves in a position to provide their patients the best possible care. And I think that people generally do that, mm-hmm. um, which is why I, I think that residency is a fantastic option if you know what you want to do already, if you know what you're passionate about. But mm-hmm. I would probably not do a residency program if I didn't if I wasn't passionate about that so I did ortho because I love orthopedic clinic (laughs) I think it's so much fun I really enjoy working with the high level patients and that's one of the reasons why I chose Drexel because that was the population we got to work with so yeah I agree cool well thank you so much for volunteering all of that free time you have to chat (laughs) with me today (laughs) um and we'll see everyone next time yeah thank you thanks for having me